Book Seven, Part One of Ovid's Metamorphoses. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Metamorphoses by Publius Ovidius Naso. Translated by Brooks Moore. Book Seven, Part One. Over the storm-tossed waves the Argonauts had sailed in Argo, their long ship to where King Phineas, needy in his old age, reigned, deprived of sight and feeble. When the sons of Boreas had landed on the shore, and seen the harpies snatching from the king his nourishment, befouling it with beaks obscene, they drove those human vultures thence. And having suffered hardships and great toils, after the day they rescued the sad king from the vile harpies, those twin valiant youths, Zetes and Calais, came with their chief, the mighty Jason, where the Phasus flows. From the green margin of that river, all the crew of Argonauts, by Jason led, went to the king Aetes, and required the golden fleece, that he received from Phrixus. When they had bargained with him, full of wiles, he offered to restore the golden fleece only to those who might to him return, victorious from hard labours of great risk. Medea, the king's daughter, near his throne, saw Jason, leader of the Argonauts, as he was pressing to secure a prize, and loved him at first sight with a consuming flame. Although she struggled to suppress her love, unable to restrain herself, she said, "'In vain I've striven to subdue my heart. Some god it must be, which I cannot tell, is working to destroy my hapless life, or else it is the burning flame of love that in me rages. If it is not love, why do the mandates of my father seem too harsh? They surely are too harsh. Why do I fear that he may perish whom I have seen only once? What is the secret cause that I am agitated by such fears? It is no other than the god of love. Thrust from your virgin breast such burning flames, and overcome their hot unhappiness. If I could do so, I should be myself. But some deluding power is holding me helpless against my will. Desire persuades me one way, but my reason still persuades another way. I see a better course, and I approve, but follow its defeat. O royal maiden, why are you consumed with love for this strange man, and why are you so willing to be carried by the nuptial ties so far from your own country, where indeed are many brave men worthy of your love? Whether for life or death his numbered hours are in the mercy of the living gods, and that he may not suffer risk of death too well foreseen, now let my prayers prevail, righteously uttered of a generous heart without the stress of love. What wicked thing has Jason done? His handsome person, youth, and noble ways would move a heart of stone. Have I a heart of flint, or was I born a tigress to deny him timely aid? Unless I interpose, he will be slain by the hot breath of brazen-footed bulls, or will be slaughtered by the warriors sprung miraculous from earth, or will be given to satisfy the ravenous appetite of a huge dragon. Let my gloating eyes be satiate with his dying agonies. Let me incite the fury of these bulls. Stir to their blood-lust mad-born sons of earth, rouse up the never-sleeping dragon's rage, avert it, gods. But why should I cry out upon the gods to save him from such wrong, when by my actions and my power myself may shield him from all evils? Such a course would wreck the kingdom of my father, and by me the wily stranger would escape from him. 
and spreading to the wind his ready sails, he would forget and leave me to my fate. Oh, if he should forget my sacrifice, and so prefer those who neglected him, let him then perish in his treachery. But these are idle thoughts. His countenance reveals innate nobility and grace, that should dispel all fear of treachery, and guarantee his ever-faithful heart. The gods will witness our united souls, and he shall pledge his faith. Secure of it my fear will be removed. Be ready, then, and make a virtue of necessity. Your Jason owes himself to you, and he must join you in true wedlock. Then you shall be celebrated through the land of Greece by throngs of women for the man you saved. Shall I then sail away, and so forsake my sister, brother, father, gods, and land that gave me birth? My father is indeed a stern man, and my native land is all too barbarous. My brother is a child, my sister's good will is good help for me, and heaven's supreme God is within my breast. I shall not so be leaving valued hopes, but will be going surely to great things. And I should gain applause from all the world as having saved the threatened Argonauts, the most noble of the Greeks, and in their land, which certainly is better than my own, become the bride of Jason, for whose love I should not hesitate to give the world, and in whose love the living gods rejoice so greatly. For his sake they would bestow their favours on my head, and make the stars my habitation. Should I hesitate because the wreck-strewn mountains bar the way, and clash together in the Euxin waves, or fear Charybdis, fatal to large ships, that sucks the deep sea in its whirling gulf and spouts far upward with alternate force, or Scylla, circled with infuriate hounds howling in rage from deep Sicilian waves, safe in the shielding arms of him I love, on Jason's bosom leaning, I shall be borne safely over wide and hostile seas, and in his dear embrace forget my fears, or if for anything I suffer dread, it will be only for the one I love. Alas, Medea, this vain argument has only furnished plausible excuse for criminal desires, and desecrates the marriage rite. It is a wicked thing to think upon. Before it is too late, forget your passion, and deny this guilt." And after she had said these words, her eyes were opened to the prize of modesty, chaste virtue and pure affection, and Cupid, vanquished, turned away and fled. Then to an ancient altar of the goddess named Hecate, Percy's daughter took her way in the deep shadows of a forest. She was strong of purpose now, and all the flames of a vanquished passion had died down. But when she saw the son of Eson, dying flames leaped up again. Her cheeks grew red, then all her face went pale again, as a small spark when hid beneath the ashes, if fed by a breath of wind, grows and regains its strength, as it is fanned to life. So now her love that had been smouldering, and which she would have thought was almost dead, when she had again seen this manly youth, blazed up once more. For on that day his graceful person seemed as glorious as a god. And as she gazed and fixed her eyes upon his countenance, her frenzy so prevailed, she was convinced that he was not a mortal. And her eyes were fascinated, and she could not turn away from him. But when he spoke to her, and promised marriage, grasping her right hand, she answered, as her eyes suffused with tears, I see what I will do, and ignorance of truth will not be my undoing now, but love itself. By my assistance you shall be preserved, but when preserved, fulfil your promise. He swore that she could trust in him. Then by the goddess of the triple form, Diana, Trivia, or Luna called, 
and by her sacred groves and fanes he vowed, and by the hallowed sun that sees all things, and by his own adventures and his life. On these the youthful Jason took his oath. With this she was assured, and quickly gave to him the magic herbs. He learnt their use, and full of joy withdrew into his house. Now when the dawn had dimmed the glittering stars, the people hastened to the sacred field of Mars, and on the hills expectant stood. Arrayed in purple, and in majesty distinguished by his ivory sceptre, sat the king, surrounded by a multitude. Below them on the visioned field of Mars huge brazen-footed bulls were breathing forth from adamantine nostrils, living flames, blasting the verdant herbage in their path. As forges glowing with hot flames resound, or as much quicklime burnt in earthen kilns, crackles and hisses as if mad with rage, sprinkled with water, liberating heat, so their hot throats and triple-heated sides resounding told of pent-up fires within. The son of Eson went to meet them. As he came to meet them, the fierce animals turned on him faces terrible, and sharp horns tipped with iron, and they pawed the dusty earth with cloven feet, and filled the place with fiery bellowings. The minions were stark with fear. He went up to the bulls, not feeling their hot breath at all, so great the power of his charmed drugs. And while he was stroking their down-hanging dewlaps with a fearless hand, he placed the yoke down on their necks, and made them draw the heavy plough, and cut through fields that never felt the steel before. The Colchians were amazed and silent, but the loud shouting of the minions increased their hero's courage. Taking then the serpent's teeth out of a brazen helmet, he sowed them broadcast in the new ploughed field. The moist earth softened these seeds that were steeped in virulent poison, and the teeth swelled up and took new forms. And just as in its mother an infant gradually assumes the form of man, and is perfected through all parts within, and does not come forth to the light till fully formed, so when the forms of men had been completed in the womb of earth made pregnant, they rose up from it, and what is yet more wonderful, each one clashed weapons that had been brought forth with him. When his companions saw the warriors turn as if with one accord, to hurl their spears sharp-pointed at the head of Jason, fear unnerved the boldest, and their courage failed. So too the maid, whose sorcery had saved him from much danger, when she saw the youth encompassed by those raging enemies, and he alone against so many, struck with sudden panic, she turned ashen white, her bloodless cheeks were blanched, and chilled with fear she wilted to the ground. And lest the herb so lately given him might fail his need, she added incantations and invoked mysterious arts. While she protected him he seized upon a heavy stone, and hurled it in the midst of his new enemies. Distracted by this cast, and murderous, they turned from him, and clashing their new arms, those earth-born brothers fought amongst themselves, till all were slaughtered in bloodthirsty strife. Gladly the Greeks acclaimed him conqueror, and pressed around him for the first embrace. Then, too, Medea, barbarous Colchin maid, although her modesty restrained her heart, eagerly longed to fold him in her arms, but careful of her good name, held aloof, rejoicing in deep, silent love, and she acknowledged to the gods her mighty gift of incantations. But the dragon, still alert, magnificent and terrible, with gorgeous crest and triple tongue, and fangs barbed as a javelin, guards the golden fleece and Jason can obtain that quest only if slumber may seal up the monster's eyes. Jason, successful, sprinkled on his crest Lethean juices of a magic herb, and then recited thrice the words which bring deep slumber, potent words which would becalm the storm-tossed ocean, and would stop the flow of the most rapid rivers of our earth. And slowly slumber sealed the dragon's eyes. While that great monster slept, 
the hero took the golden fleece, and proudly sailed away bearing his treasure and the willing maid whose aid had saved him, to his native port Iolcus, victorious with the Argonauts. Now when the valiant Argonauts returned to Thessaly, their happy relatives, fathers and mothers, praised the living gods, and with their hallowed gifts enhanced the flames with precious incense, and they offered Jove a sacred bullock, rich with gilded horns. But Jason's father, Aeson, came not down rejoicing to behold his son, for now worn out with many years he waited death. And Jason to Medea, grieving, said, Dearest, to whom my life and love are due, although your kindness has been great to me, and you have granted more than I should ask, yet one more thing I beg of you. If your enchantments can accomplish my desire, take from my life some years that I should live, and add them to my father's ending days." And as he spoke he could not check his tears. Medea, moved by his affection, thought how much less she had grieved for her loved sire, and she replied, "'A wicked thing, you ask. Can I be capable of using you in such a manner as to take your life and give it to another? Ask me not a thing so dreadful. May the gods forbid. I will endeavour to perform for you a task much greater. By the powers of night I will most certainly return to him the lost years of your father, but must not deprive you of your own. O oh, grant the power, great goddess of the triple form, that I might not fail to accomplish this great deed." Three nights were wanting for the moon to join her circling horns and form a perfect orb. When these were past, the rounded light shone full and bright upon the earth. Through the still night alone Medea stole forth from the house with feet bare, and in flowing garment clothed, her long hair unadorned and not confined. Deep slumber has relaxed the world and all that's living, animals and birds and men, and even the hedges and the breathing leaves are still, and motionless the laden air. Only the stars are twinkling, and to them she looks and beckons with imploring hands. Now thrice around she paces, and three times besprinkles her long hair with water dipped from crystal streams, a which having done she kneels a moment on the cold bare ground, and screaming three times calls upon the night. O faithful night, regard my mysteries, O golden lighted stars, O softly moving moon, genial your fire succeeds the heated day, O Hecate, grave three-faced queen of these charms of enchanters and enchanters' arts, O fruitful earth, giver of potent herbs, O gentle breezes and destructive winds, you mountains, rivers, lakes, and sacred groves, and every dreaded god of silent night, attend upon me. When my power commands, the rivers turn from their accustomed ways, and roll far backward to their secret springs. I speak, and the wild troubled sea is calm, and I command the waters to arise. The clouds I scatter, and I bring the clouds. I smooth the winds, and ruffle up their rage. I weave my spells, and I recite my charms. I pluck the fangs of serpents, and I move the living rocks, and twist the rooted oaks. I blast the forests. Mountains at my word tremble and quake, and from her granite tombs the liberated ghosts arise as earth astonished groans. From your appointed ways, O wonder-working moon, I draw you down against the magic-making sound of gongs and brazen vessels of Temesa's oar. I cast my spells and veil the jewelled rays of Phoebus' wane, and quench Aurora's fires. At my command you tamed the flaming bulls which long disdained to bend beneath the yoke, until they pressed their necks against the ploughs. And subject to my will you raised up war till the strong company of dragon birth were slaughtered as they fought amongst themselves. At last you lulled asleep the warden's eyes, guards of the golden fleece, till then awake and sleeping never, 
So, deceiving him, you sent the treasure to the Grecian cities. Witness my need of supernatured herbs, elixirs potent to renew the years of age, giving the bloom of youth. You shall not fail to grant me this, for not in vain the stars are flashing confirmation, not in vain the flying dragons harnessed by their necks from skies descending bring my chariot down. A chariot, sent from heaven, came to her, and soon as she had stroked the dragon's necks, and shaken in her hands the guiding reins, as soon as she had mounted, she was borne quickly above, through unresisting air. And sailing over Thessaly she saw the Vale of Tempe, where the level soil is widely covered with a crumbling chalk. She turned her dragons towards new regions there, and she observed the herbs by Ossa born, the weeds on lofty Pelion, Othrys, Pindus, and vast Olympus and from here she plucked the kneaded roots, or there the blossoms clipped all with a moon-curved sickle made of brass. Many the wild weeds by Apidanus, as well as blue Amphorisus banks, she chose, and not escaped Anipius from her search. Penean stretches, and Spurchian banks all yielded what she chose, and Boebe's shore where sway the rushes, she plucked up grass, a secret grass, from fair Euboean fields, life-giving virtues in their waving blades, as yet unknown for transformation wrought on Glaucus. All those fields she visited, with ceaseless diligence in quest of charms, nine days and nine nights sought strong herbs, and the swift dragons with their active wings failed not to guide the chariot where she willed, until they reached her home. The dragons then had not been even touched by anything, except the odour of surrounding herbs, and yet they sloughed their skins, the growth of years. She would not cross the threshold of her home, nor pass its gates, but standing in the field, alone beneath the canopy of heaven, she shunned all contact with her husband, while she built up from the ever-living turf two altars, one of which upon the right to Hecate was given, but the one upon the left was sacred then to you, O Hebe, goddess of eternal youth. Festooning woodland boughs and sweet vervain adorned these altars, near by which she dug as many trenches. Then, when all was done, she slaughtered a black ram, and sprinkled with blood the thirsty trenches, after which she poured from rich Carchesian goblets generous wine and warm milk, grateful to propitious gods, the deities of earth on whom she called, entreating as she did so, Pluto, lord of ghostly shades, and ravished Proserpine, that they should not in undue haste deprive her patient's aged limbs of life. When certain she compelled the gods' regard, assured her incantations and long prayers were both approved and heard, she bade her people bring out the body of her father-in-law, old Eason's worn-out body, and when she had buried him in a deep slumber by her spells, as if he were a dead man, she then stretched him out upon a bed of herbs. She ordered Jason and his servants thence, and warned them not to spy upon her rites with eyes profane. As soon as they retired, Medea, with dishevelled hair and wild abandon, as a bacchanalian, paced three times around the blazing altars, while she dipped her torches, splintered at the top, into the trenches, dark with blood, and lit the dipped ends in the sacred altar-flames. Times three she purified the ancient man with flames, and thrice with water, and three times with sulphur, as the boiling mixture seethed and bubbled in the brazen cauldron near and into this acerbic juices, roots and flowers and seeds, from veils Hermonian, and mixed elixirs, into which she cast stones of strange virtue from the Orient, and sifted sands of ebbing ocean's tide, white hoar-frost gathered when the moon was full, the nauseating flesh and luckless wings of the uncanny screech-owl, and the entrails from mysterious animal that changed from wolf to man, from man to wolf again, 
the scaly sloughing of a water-snake, the medic liver of a long-lived stag, and the hard beak and head of an old crow which was alive nine centuries before. These and a thousand nameless things the foreign sorceress prepared and mixed, and blended all together with a branch of peaceful olive, old and dry with years. And while she stirred the withered olive branch in the hot mixture, it began to change from brown to green, and presently put forth new leaves, and soon was heavy with a wealth of luscious olives. As the ever-rising fire threw bubbling froth beyond the cauldron's rim, the ground was covered with fresh verdure, flowers and all luxuriant grasses and green plants. Medea, when she saw this wonder, took her unsheathed knife, and cut the old man's throat. Then, letting all his old blood out of him, she filled his ancient veins with rich elixir. As he received it through his lips or wound, his beard and hair, no longer white with age, turned quickly to their natural vigour, dark and lustrous, and his wasted form renewed appeared in all the vigour of bright youth, no longer lean and sallow, for new blood coursed in his well-filled veins. Astonished when released from his deep sleep, and strong in youth, his memory assured him such he was years four times ten before that day. Bacchus, from his celestial vantage, saw this marvel, and convinced his nurses might then all regain their former vigour, he pled with Medea to restore their youth. The Colchian woman granted his request. End of Book 7, Part 1